everyone and welcome to episode 103 of the History Hotline. My name is Deanna Lincook and as always I am your host today and I am joined by a special guest. As we continue on in our series with the History Matters Journal, bringing in some of the editorial team to the History Hotline episodes in order for them to speak about the journal and some of the work that they do in kind of the wider world, historically, within academia, education or in this case journalism. Um, I'm really excited to introduce this guest to you, um, someone that I've wanted to do a podcast with for a really long time because the work that he does is fantastic um, and writing that he does is just brilliant and we're going to be talking about some of that today. So introducing Perry Blankson to the History Hotline today. Welcome Perry. Oh that's an amazing <laughs> introduction Deanna, thank you so much. <laughs> no worries at all. Um, and so just for anyone that isn't familiar with Perry and his work, he is a columnist for Tribune magazine and a project coordinator at the Young Historians Project, which uh, works to encourage the development of young historians of African and Caribbean descent. And he's also a member of the editorial working group for the History Matters Journal, which is part of the reason why he's here today to talk about the work uh, that History Matters are doing. Hi, Perry. Hi, Diana. <laughs> Welcome. So <laughs> I thought, first of all, just so the listeners can get to know you a little bit more, um, we're going to talk essentially about you um, and just have a few quick fire questions. Um, and I ask all the guests that we've had, um, well, A.S. Francis uh, and Tion Paris uh, from the journal as well um, in past episodes. I've asked them similar questions, but I feel like you're a little bit different um, okay. because you're not kind of, you're not in the same, um, should we say, the PhD. Uh, yeah, you're right, you're, right. Um, you're writing. So I guess the first question is, like, what was your kind of interest or introduction into history? Kind of why did you start getting involved and interested in that? Yeah, that's a good question, actually. Um, it's a weird one with me because um, when it came to choosing my undergraduate course um, when I was in sixth form, I was about I was a millimetre away from choosing English because um, I really enjoyed English. But I, uh, I had a really, really good um, history teacher um, from about year seven to year 10. And I just remember that they were always encouraging me um, to take up history and saying, oh, you'd be a really good historian. It'd be amazing. And I think that was what pushed me to to go for history. And, you know, here we are today. So it was a close call. I think I had a similar close call, but decided to go for both because yeah, indecisiveness. Yeah. Um, what is your favourite historical time period to, to look at, whether that was kind of during your studies or now? So I would definitely say the 20th century and to be more specific, uh, I'd say the 60s. Um, I know it's quite popular, um, but it was just such a time of massive upheaval. Um, just wherever you looked, um, you could see revolution. Um, I mean, let's just take the most one of the most famous examples, the United States and Britain, of course, with the Black Panthers. Um, and that's kind of where my interests um is focused so I would say yeah the 60s really well yeah definitely so much happened and literally across as you said US Britain and then also in the Caribbean um, and in parts of Africa as well like so many different movements for um, black liberation um, as a Tribune columnist what has been your favourite article to write or research um, so I would say that my favourite article was something that I wrote during the pandemic um, and it was called Corporate Social Justice is a Scam. 
And essentially the gist of the article was that um, corporations in the light of BLM, um, they sort of performed the pantomime of supporting racial justice, but um, economically, um, the reality was the opposite. Um, so it went all to, it went all into um, it was mostly about vaccines and vaccine distribution. And at the yeah. time, the term that was being used was vaccine apartheid. Mm. Um, so yeah, it just goes into that, but also focuses. Um, it has a little case study of the Cuban response to the pandemic, and Cuba, of course, being a socialist republic, was able to. Um, you know, forego any negotiations with um, massive pharmaceutical corporations and instead were able to develop their own vaccines. Um, And that's something that I thought was really admirable. And um, that was probably my favourite piece to write, I'd say. Yeah, definitely. Um, I love that piece. Um, I think as well, like bringing in the IMF, because I think going from Jamaica and knowing the perspective there, um, it's always a case of like these debts, these heavy debts that these countries owe to these um, giant corporations, funds, um, banks across the world is kind of always going to limit how far they can grow. And yeah, the fact that you brought all of that in and um, at a time where it just seemed like people were just, yeah, black yeah. squares everywhere <laughs> and prom- empty promises. Um, it definitely needed to be said for sure who would you say if you had to pick one and I know you do write about historical figures um who has been your favorite maybe not necessarily to write about but who's your favorite historical figure um you can give a few if you need I'll, to. I'll say one I'll <laughs> say one and it's also someone that I've written about and um it's George Padmore so George Padmore was a, a Trinidadian um Marxist and he was essentially the architect or one of the founding or prime movers of the Pan-African movement in the 20th century. He was he had very close relations with Kwame Nkrumah. And he even uh, mentored him for a bit when they, when they were both in London. And I just thought that uh, his life is just incredible. Um, if you just look through his biographies, it's just an infinite number of stories to tell. Um, he was most famously known for having a massive sprawling network of contacts uh, that spanned basically the globe. He's an incredibly well-connected figure. And one of my favourite sort of stories to do with George Padmore was that um, whenever any leading revolutionary or anti-colonial agitator um, landed in London, their first words would be, how can I find George Padmore? Or where's George Padmore? Something to that effect. Um, and that's just something that stuck with me and really sort of made him a, a influential historical figure to me. Absolutely. And I think as well, your point about him having such a wide like web of network and connections across literally the whole world um, shows the kind of links um, when it came to like movements for equality and liberation, just how connected and interconnected different countries and even in their own kind of individual struggles were. Um, so yeah, Absolutely. he's a quite a good... Um, epitome of that I would say um and then I don't know if this will be a similar answer but do you have a historical figure in mind that you wish more people knew about yeah um and you've probably heard about this person um quite a bit and I hope they don't mind me uh, yeah. using them as a historical figure because they're definitely also a current figure but I would say um yeah. Zainab Abbas um and obviously, yeah, um, Zainab is quite close with YHP. Um, there's been a lot that we've worked together, interviewed, um, and she's just been an all-round presence uh, for YHP. But obviously, um, 
Zainab was a really prominent member of the Black Liberation Front and also the Brixton Black Women's Movement. Yeah. Um, and I just, I, I recently actually interviewed Zainab and just hearing the stories that she has to tell, um, I just wish more people knew um, of, you know, the involvement of not just Zainab, but her, all the other um, women whose stories have not really been uh, highlighted um, in terms of their contribution to the Black revolutionary struggle. Mm, absolutely. Um, but that segues us quite nicely into the work of the History Matters Journal, because that's essentially what it does. And it does so well um, in terms of bringing stories to light um, in within Black Britain and, and within movements um, in this country um, and highlighting and showcasing these histories that have gone underrepresented and kind of underserved for so long. Um, so kind of moving on to the History Matters Journal, why did you decide to become part of the History Matters um, editorial team? Uh, what was the kind of the move like? Yeah, so I initially, I was part of YHP um, and History Matters is sort of the parent organisation of YHP. And I think it was Hakeem and Amelia who are currently on the editorial board. They reached out to me um, and it was... It was in the midst of them planning a conference, which I also attended. But yeah. they uh, they asked if I'd like to be part of the editorial team, and I just I thought uh, it would be a really good opportunity to sort of be in community with. Um, obviously, I'm part of YHP, but then further um, Black academics who are interested in the same kind of histories that I am. Absolutely, um, and. Was there anything at that stage? Um, it seems that was quite early on. Had there were there already issues of the journal out, or were you kind of there in the kind of earlier stages in the? Oh, there were there were definitely a few issues out before. Okay. Yeah, I yeah. was I was a late joiner. So oh, fair enough. <laughs> okay, that's not a problem. Um, and so within the History Matters Journal, um, you have written a piece and I just kind of wanted to have us reflect on it for a second just because I think by the time this episode comes out it will be two years since the civil report came out in 2021 um and you wrote a piece the 2021 civil report of vindication of the young historians project um and it was a piece that was really interesting to me because it it puts into parallel the work of YHP, um, the Young Historians Project, and this report that was so, hmm, I don't know how to, I don't really need to say this politely, but just full of nonsense, really. Um, <laughs> so I kind of wanted to talk to you about that. Um, for Just for the listeners that uh, don't know anything about YHP or anything like that yet, do you want to give them a little bit of well, what YHP is and what is the work that they do? Um, I mean, I can do that as well, but since you're here... <laughs> So yeah, I mean, YHP is a as a collective of young people of African and Caribbean descent, aged about sixteen to twenty five. Although we're we're definitely more towards the twenty five uh, end of the spectrum, I would say in terms of membership. But we're it, we're a group of young people of African and Caribbean descent. We've all got an interest in Black British history, and we work to we work on projects and we do interviews and all sorts of work to catalogue um, stories that have been sort of stories that haven't had the attention they deserve, essentially. 
as we try and bring these stories to the light. So our most recent project was on um, African women in the British healthcare service, and that was highlighting their stories, which we thought had sort of been underserved in the history of the NHS and the British Health Service. So that's just sort of a flavour of what YHP do. Fantastic, thank you. Um, And so within that article, um, you made a point about the fact that um, it essentially repackages the horrors of enslavement and kind of suggests that African people were able to transform themselves. And it was this like moment of cultural reinvention when it was just exploitation, violence um, and pillaging of, of cultures, languages, traditions and everything else. Um, and then you kind of go on to say, like, this isn't anything we would have learned about in school necessarily, um, because when it is Black History Month or when there is a time to learn about black history, it's very much a civil rights, which is the US civil rights, sorry, which is something I've harped on about on this podcast countless times. Um, but I wanted to just kind of get your perspective on like how important is maybe the work of YHP, the work of the History Matters Journal in showcasing and exploring um these histories in the context of Britain and as opposed to the US, which is tends to be the focus as Britain shies away from the racism that they've meted out um, around the world? Yeah, no, so going through school, I was taught about, you know, Martin Luther King, I was taught about Rosa Parks, um, even Malcolm X for a, a brief sort of period, but I had no idea that they very much had parallels in Britain um, and there there was a whole history of, you know, anti-racism in Britain that in school we just weren't taught about um so I think just in general trying to get the conversation more Britain focused rather than the American-centric curriculum that we have I think that's a a major contribution of YHP and History Matters. Definitely do you think because I keep thinking I feel like there's a lot of work being done to showcase these stories but the I think the I don't know if it's the the memory of US civil rights looms so large that it feels like it's like chipping away at an iceberg. Do you think there will be a time where, let's say, I don't know, British children actually can can understand and know on equal footing what's happened in the UK as they do in America? Or do you think we're a really long way away from that? Well, it's tricky. It's tricky because a lot. A lot of it depends on the curriculum, which, of course, has been is under strict control of the government. And, well, I'd, I'd love to see that. I just think that we're currently up against uh, a government which is determined to prevent that from being the case. Um, and obviously, you mentioned the article that I wrote on the Sewer Report in uh, for History Matters. And the, the gist of that report was that uh, Britain had defeated institutional racism and that uh, racism was over so we don't have to focus on we don't have to focus on it on it anymore Um, and I think when that's the sort of government that you're up against and that's the government that sets the curriculum it's always going to be difficult to right the wrongs of uh, past history history curriculums however it's it's groups like YHP um, that can sort of help combat that and you know we're trying to do our little bit here and there while we can but I think overall it's going to take a much more holistic change uh, to the way we teach history to young people to achieve that. Absolutely I would agree especially I think you made a really good point there the fact that the teaching of um, 
black British history is linked to this idea of racism. But I guess for all of us in YHP, we do history not necessarily because we want to counter racism or anything other. We do it for nothing other than really because we really enjoy history. We really like it. We like talking about it. We like researching about it. So the fact that it's always kind of linked to, oh, we need black history to fight racism. Actually, it's just interesting. And it is British history. Why can't we just teach it in that sense? Um, It's always a very like political conversation and I'm not sure how fruitful that is personally yeah absolutely I mean it's it's tricky because obviously a large portion of the history of African and Caribbean people in Britain has been fighting against racism and trying to survive in a racist society but that's not the be all and end all of of life in Britain and of course you know you have to appreciate um the other aspects of of living in Britain and the cultural um, the cultural joy even um, that oppressed communities uh, are able to generate and I think obviously it's important to focus on the struggle and the fight and uh, the survival aspect but I think just as important is to focus on you know the joy the community uh, the solidarity and I think just getting that balance right and forming a more complete picture um, is more helpful for everybody absolutely I would definitely agree Um, and one of the things um, that you've written about um, one of my favorite articles that you've written is about Britain's secret war on black power and state surveillance and that kind of thing and it's something I've been interested in since the first episode of this podcast when I looked at the mangrove nine Um, and the surveillance that was on some of the members of the Black Panther movement in Britain, um, and that kind of thing, um, in the 60s and 70s. Um, And I'm asking about this because you just mentioned about, you know, Black life in Britain not necessarily always being um, about racism, and we don't always have to focus on that um, as Black life, um, and the kind of realities of it. Um, But I just wondered, within the article, how far and how... How how much did the surveillance not help us as historians and the people that look back at this past history, but help us to get an insight into black life? Obviously, not to say that it was a positive thing in any way, shape or form. Um, but how much do we get from things like that as historians or as researchers and journalists doing this work? So in terms of the surveillance aspect, it's always quite tricky because you're dealing with uh, the National Archive, you're dealing with the Colonial Office, Foreign and Commonwealth Office, you're dealing with the Home Office uh, in terms of the documents that you're looking at. So in that way, you're looking at the lives of black people through the eyes of the state. And that was my, uh, that was my master's dissertation. That's what I looked at. And while I think it can be useful. I would say it's far more useful for looking at government attitudes towards these communities rather than um, anything anything internal, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Um, one thing that really struck me in the article was um, a section about surveillance in Sheffield. This is so specific, but I couldn't let it go. Um, but essentially that I always thought that surveillance within, um, you know, the like, special branch desk and that kind of thing was that some of the like more prolific figures and those that had a following, shall we say. But in Sheffield, and I don't know, you can correct me if I'm 
like wrong or unaware if this was happening in other places in the UK. But they were just doing surveillance and reporting on any black person, just black inhabitants of different places. Yeah, absolutely. So the Sheffield incident was, uh, it was interesting as the, the chief constable uh, gave authorization to their officers to, and the quote is, observe, visit and report on the black population in, in uh, Sheffield. And also those measures um, went a bit further and uh, a card index was authorised. And this card index uh, contained the names, addresses, nationalities and place of employment of all 534 uh, of the of Sheffield's black inhabitants at the time. There's actually uh, there's a similar uh, example of this sort of wholesale surveillance on, on the black community. And this um, took place in the 60s in Manchester. Um, Kevin in the Kevin from the National Archives, Kevin Sewell, he shared with me initially a file. Um, I think it was a it was definitely a Home Office file, and it's a report that was drawn up by the Manchester City Police um, at the behest of a Home Office, and it basically is a massive. I'd love to show you a picture. It's a massive sort of A three um, graph table of. Um, the inhabitants of of Manchester and it's split um, into ethnic groups so it's got I think it's got um, Caribbean um, Indian African uh, and other but also one thing that's quite interesting is that it also has a uh, it has a column with um, with I in uh, it is like an I marked in uh, in red and that stood for illegitimate um, so it was cataloging the legitimacy, the legitimacy of um, of black children oh as well in uh, in Manchester. So and it was also looking at uh, what I'm going to put in quotes as race mixing um, that was going on in in Manchester at the time. So it's a really interesting document. I'd love to show you. Um, but yeah, that's sort that's the sort of activities that the, uh, the government was was involved in, wow. in at that time. Wow, you just you just wouldn't know. That is crazy. yeah, exactly. And it's it's just sitting there in the National Archives and uh, oh, yeah, that place though, that archives. Oh, especially that one because I go there a lot for colonial office records, looking at the Caribbean, and like it's a minefield. Yeah, I mean, there's 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 all sorts you can find there. I mean, when I was doing my master's um, research, it was really useful. Um, for helping me to find surveillance documents and just sort of intelligence documents, um, particularly um, when I was looking at the Caribbean aspects of the surveillance. There were tons and tons of top secret documents that have been declassified from years ago. Um, but also, one thing with the National Archive is that um, it can be quite difficult to get your hands on some on certain things. For example, I know, I know America Sherwood... Yeah has been um, fighting for years trying to get the documents on George Cadmore released. Um, and although the government yeah. says they don't have any, he was definitely under surveillance. But <laughs> yes. So, yeah, that's just one aspect um, of the National Archives to also be wary of. Yeah, very interesting. Well, it's not interesting. It's, it's very insidious, actually. 
um, the way in which they kind of pick and choose what we can access, when we can access it and who can access it, essentially. Um, this is very fascinating, this surveillance stuff. What made you do your master's on it? Like, what, what was it something you read? Like, how did you kind of get into this um, kind of topic? So it stemmed from my initial, initial research into Kwame Nkrumah um, that I did for my undergraduate. And I was looking at the surveillance of Nkrumah himself. He was someone who was under surveillance, essentially, from the moment he stepped foot in in uh, in London. And I just, uh, I thought the surveillance aspect was really, really interesting. And I thought, why not look beyond Nkrumah and see, um, you know, what the state was up to um, in the 50s, 60s and beyond. Is this something, this is something I'm assuming that still pushes today, maybe not necessarily with just like black people or leaders in that sense but are these programs something of the past or something of the now if you know (laughs) well i mean if anything surveillance has only become more sophisticated i mean we've got um we all know that um our data online can easily easily be sort of tracked and and that that can be collected um, and obviously, back in the sixties, that you had to uh, you had to, of course, manually surveil someone. You couldn't just use cameras. Um, you couldn't just use CCTV. You had to, you know, you had to put a physical a physical body to tail them, essentially, and report on their daily goings on. I mean, today, if you wanted to do that, you can just look at someone's like like someone's Instagram feed or someone's uh, someone's Facebook feed. You know what I mean? Wow, that's crazy, you know, when you actually put it that way in the sense of surveillance back then literally required someone actually physically following you, which means that surveillance then is based on one or maybe two or whoever followed that their singular perspective, not to say it's better now that there's cameras following people everywhere and GPS and that kind of thing, but it would have been literally up to one individual to create a whole kind of package, a file, a uh, an in, like an image of this individual, which is quite quite scary when you actually really think about it. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously, um, while individuals would perform the surveillance, there were whole teams of people um, that were dedicated to you know dissecting the findings of mm. what had been found from the surveillance and then using that to um, take any further steps forward. So, for example, um, you could look at Roy Saw who was um, a prominent figure in the Black Power movement of the 1960s. And he, uh, the words that he, that he said in, in Hyde Park during his uh, speeches in Speaker's Corner, they were recorded by undercover officers who were physically there and they were used to prosecute him in court. So that was some of the ways that surveillance was used to uh, attack these uh, activists. It's crazy. Yeah. Wow. The more you know. Um, that was definitely um, a really, really interesting uh, and important article that I really enjoyed um, about yeah, the state's secret war on black power. Um, I was wondering, being a writer and not necessarily kind of an academic, like doing a PhD or doing a master's again um, and kind of looking at one specific topic as you would have done during your master's, you know, as when you write articles, you you probably write, you know, several and 
think about different things. How do you decide what to write about? Is it a case of, you know, your interests or stories that come to you or come to mind or that people ask you to write about? How does that all work? Yeah, so it's a, it's a bit of everything, really. Um, sometimes I'll be reading something and just sort of bookmark it in my head as a potentially interesting topic to come and write about. And yeah. other times um, my editor will just sort of send me a message saying, you know, we've got, uh, we've got a new edition coming out. Would you like to write about something along these lines? Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And there's uh, quite a degree of freedom, really, in that... Um, whether or not I'm interested in what gets suggested to me, um, you know, I can always just sort of pitch something else, or um, it just come. It just comes down to how um, into into what I'm most interested in at the moment. Um, so I wondered if at this point you wanted to maybe talk us through um, any of the historical research that's happening either in YHP or in maybe an article that you're planning to write if you can talk about that or kind of project that you want to share um, anything that's kind of happening now in your yeah, research life. absolutely so in terms of YHP we are currently um, in the process of applying for funding for our next project which is uh, looking at the history of Black British history so of course in the wake of BLM um, in in 2020, there was a massive drive for you know more Black history and for Black history to be more accessible, visible. Uni courses started popping up everywhere. You know, Black history was really the sort of uh, it was in vogue. Um, <laughs> and I mean, we can see today now the momentum behind that has kind of uh, I wouldn't say petered out, but it's definitely slowed down. Yeah. And there have been some courses that have been under under threat. Uh, I know um, Goldsmiths, yeah, um, the, Black, the Black British History course over there um, has been under threat. So the the projects uh, it looks to do it looks to sort of trace the development of Black British history prior to its you know explosion in popularity, and it tries to sort of place a, a spotlight on some of the key figures that were influential in helping uh, to develop the. To, in, to develop the field as a, as a discipline. Fantastic. Sounds very interesting. And I am enjoying being a part of that. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, I don't know what's happening there. But now I thought we'd just kind of close by talking about the History Matters Journal, um, as that's kind of the reason why we're here. Um, but essentially, how has the journal, as an editor and maybe as a writer for it, um, how has that helped in sharing histories of the African diaspora in Britain? Yeah, I think if you just have a look at the contents of any journal, you'll see that there's stories about Black British history from all across um, Britain. And for me especially, um, it's been really useful because my understanding of um, Black British history has been very London-focused. Yeah. Um, and what the journal is really, really amazing at is that it uh, it spans not only geography but um, time periods as well. I, I I know I said that my focus is on the uh, the nineteen sixties, but I've seen articles in History Matters that look at Edwardian Britain, mm-hmm. you know, Tudor Britain, mm-hmm. um, just sort of the, the the time periods that you wouldn't typically associate with the black presence in britain but their stories are just as important absolutely um and 
with the um, journal. I think the last publication came out autumn 22. So can we expect a new uh, publication to come out soon? Have I made that up? I think that might no, absolutely. Um, we've got our next editorial meeting coming up quite soon, and in that we're going to have a look at some of the submissions that have been sent to us, and it's going to be some sometime quite soon that the next uh, the next journal is going to be coming out. So not not too long. Wonderful, sounds good. Um, and with that, maybe not the next publication, but you know, ones to follow. How can anybody listen in here today that has an interest in in these histories and has done some research and wants to kind of get it out there in the world? How can they contribute to the History Matters Journal? Yeah, so we're, we're always looking for um, anything really, whether that's uh, interviews, photos, historic documents. Um, and if you're interested in contributing to History Matters, you can email us at histmatters at gmail.com. So that's H I S T matters at gmail.com fantastic thank you um and if you haven't listened to one of these episodes before about the history matters journal uh, and you don't know where to find it and read it we're telling you now you can find it online it is completely free there is no barrier to entry you just need an internet connection and you need to be able to access history matters journal on the website and download it it's that simple it's a pdf um there's no excuses really um so Perry uh, for anyone that has listened to this episode and they're keen to read more of your work and kind of find out what you're writing next uh, where can they find you and where can they find your work primarily on Twitter that's the social media platform I use the most um, you can find me at Perius PB so that's spelled P-E-R-I-U-S-P-B and you, I'll, I'll post all of uh, anything that I write for Tribune will be on there and yeah, that's that's just basically where you can find me. Fantastic. Um, and I'll put all your links uh, in the show notes for this episode and, of course, all the links to the History Matters Journal um, for you to be able to access that um, and read that if you would like to. Um, but thank you so much, Perry, for joining me on the podcast today. Uh, thank you for sharing your work. It is honestly fascinating, um, some of the things you've written about um, and the work that you're doing as part of History Matters uh, and as a coordinator at YHP. So thank you so much for all of that. No, not at all. Thanks for having me, Dan. That's no been a really pleasure. Thank you so much for tuning in to what I hope is another enjoyable episode of the History Hotline. Thank you so much to the History Matters Journal and to Perry Blankson in this episode. The History Hotline is brought to you by Deanna Lincook. Research is done by Zaki Arias. And please, if you would like to continue the conversation about Black British history, follow us on Twitter at the History HL, on Instagram at the History Hotline, or on LinkedIn. And remember, you can listen on any good podcast platform.